1: continue in our study in the book of Exodus we're looking at the account of the burning bush and the call of Moses as God called Moses to do something far beyond his ability and isn't that something that God would call us to have a vision for the world that we would be actually part of the fulfillment of the Great Commission that he would call us out of our own natural element to rely on him totally and this call of of Moses at the burning bush is a paradigm then of the call of God on all of our lives A call that uh, would take us uh, places we could never imagine. Facing opposition that is far too strong for us. Causing us to rely on God in a way we never thought possible. And to see God do incredible things. Uh, That same commission stands before us. And the call of Moses, a paradigm for us. Listen to the beginning of the section. We're going to pick up in the middle. But I want to get the context. Beginning at verse 1, chapter 3. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel And say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt, and I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people, so that when you leave, you will not leave empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. Stop there. Now, we've seen last time that God's timing is not our own. Uh, We perhaps would have rescued the uh, Israelites out of Egypt long before this, but they'd been in there for 400 years. And yet, we have seen the compassion of God, that yes, the wheels of providence are turning, the 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 gears of his plan, his, his sovereign and eternal plan are being worked out, they're being turned, and every gear is in place, and everything is working, just as God had said. His timing is perfect, and yet he is compassionate, reminds me very much of John chapter 11, where Jesus stands before Lazarus' tomb and weeps right before he raises Lazarus from the dead. You can't understand that unless you understand the compassion of our God. He is compassionate over the suffering that death has already caused this family and that death will cause throughout all generations. And yet he has the power to rectify the situation, the power to raise Lazarus from the dead. So we see a mingling, even in this chapter, of the incredible compassion of God and his sovereign power. Do you see it? The number of times that he says, I'm concerned about them. I've seen their suffering. I'm concerned about what the Egyptians are doing to them. And we also see a mingling of that compassion with his sovereign power. So now go, I will bring you out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And so out they come, a mingling then of the compassion and the power of God. You need to hold on to that, don't you, in your life. You need to hold on to both aspects. The fact that God is compassionate to you no matter what you're going through and that he will make you go through very difficult things, won't he? Very difficult things, even including suffering and death. He will make you go through the fire and through the water. But he's compassionate every step of the way. And even as he's working out his plan, there's still that compassion of God. He's not just dispensing a plan and you don't matter to him. But yet, you must also hold on to the sovereignty of God. He's in total control of everything that's going on. And so we see in verse 10, the call of Moses. So now, go. You see that word now, which we talked about last time. The time has come. The moment is ripe. Moses is 80 years old. The Egyptians uh, have kept Israel in bondage long enough and... In the promised land, the land flowing of milk and honey, the sin of the Amorites has reached its full measure. That was the very thing that God was waiting for. And so the time had come. And so he says in verse 10, now go. Last time, we began to address the issue of Moses' hesitation. We talked about how uh, these statements that God we'll use those that are fully and completely consecrated to him can actually be a crushing burden to us. Because we can never, it seems, attain the place in our lives where we are fully and totally, completely consecrated to God. We strive, we yearn to put sin to death, we want to be holy, we want to take out the yeast. New Year's resolutions, how are you doing so far? I'm trying to think. What are we on? January 12th. Are there any left? Maybe you didn't make any based on past experiences. I know myself. I didn't make any, so you think. We know that we resolve against evil, but it's such a hard fight, isn't it? The very thing that we hate we end up doing, said Paul in Romans 7. And so it's hard to achieve that sinless perfection that we think that God would require in order for us to be fully, totally, and completely consecrated to him. But we see very uh, often in Scripture how the greatest heroes of the Bible were not in any way fully, totally, and completely consecrated to him. You think about Gideon. How many different signs did God have to do for Gideon? And he's still reluctant. He's got to give him the fleece wet and the ground dry. He's got to give him the ground wet and the fleece dry. He's got to give him the dream in the middle of the night. He's got to give him all of these things before Gideon will move out. And why? Because just like Moses, Gideon and Moses, their focus is on themselves. And that is our plaguing problem, isn't it? We're always looking to ourselves. We are not the point. And so it says in verse 10... God gives Moses everything he needs to know. He says, so now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. What more do you need? Who is speaking to Moses? This is the eternal God who created heaven and earth. The God who said, let there be light, and there was light. This is the one who can do all things. And he's told you to do something. And so you should go, and no more quibbling. But yet we go on for another half a chapter, chapter 3, and then another full chapter, half a chapter 4. We go through all of these things before Moses is finally ready to go and so this is encouraging to me now maybe if you're sinless and totally purely completely consecrated to God you don't need Moses' hesitation at the burning bush but I do because I see that Moses did not want to go to Egypt not in any way shape or form and yet God used him in a mighty way and so it begins in verse 11 he says Moses said to God who am I? That I should bring that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. Who am I? Wrong question. We talked about this last time. We've noticed in verse 12 how God does not answer Moses' question. Instead he says, I will be with you. That is a logical non-sequitur. He didn't answer his question. Who am I that I should bring your people out of Egypt? I will be with you. The answer to the question is, you are irrelevant. It doesn't matter who you are. I have called you. I will be with you. If God is for us, who can be against us? It doesn't really matter who opposes, as long as God is in favor of the action. And he has chosen the instrument, and it's you. And so go. That's what he says. We talked last time also about how God does not do what our age would have done, which is a little um, psychologizing. A little psychotherapy. Building Moses' self-esteem up. It doesn't seem that God is concerned about Moses' self-esteem. Not at all. He was concerned about Moses' God-esteem. That Moses should esteem God to be the sovereign of the universe. And it was going to be another 40-year learning process for Moses before he esteemed him more nearly properly as the God of the universe. All of us are suffering from God-esteem, aren't we? Our big problem is not self-esteem. It's we esteem God too lightly. We underestimate what God can do in us and through us. And so he says, I will be with you. I will send you and my people will come. And when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God in this mountain. And so he says, you want a sign? I will give you a sign. Right from the outset, he brings it up before Moses even brings it up. This is the sign. Look at verse 12. This will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God in this mountain. Now that doesn't help much, does it? Think about that. The sign that it is I that have sent you is when you succeed in your mission, then you'll know. What is he calling Moses to do? To act in faith. And then when it's all done, he will look back and he will know that it was God who did it. He will know it was God. And why? Because there's no way the arm of flesh could have accomplished this. No way. You will know when you worship. And did they worship God on this mountain? Oh, yes, they did. And so it must have been God who did it, because only God could accomplish that. Well, now Moses begins some of his questioning. It's a real debate, and it goes back and forth, doesn't it? But I think the first one, he had every right to ask. He wants to know God's name. And so we don't find any reason for criticism here. This is actually very reasonable. It is a good thing that he asked God's name. And why? Because God does all things for the glory and display of his name. He wants his name to be great among the nations. And so this is actually a good question that he asks. It gets worse later. We'll get to that. For example, the low point is, oh, Lord, send somebody else. That's the low point. We'll get to that in due time. But this is a good question. What is your name? Verse 13, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you to me. So this is the display or the revelation of the name, the holy name of God. This is a very interesting interchange. First of all, we have to understand the motivation of God for his name's glory. Look over at Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. Take a minute and go there. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 9 and verse 16. This is God's word to Pharaoh. In an Exodus 9, verse 16, God says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Do you see that? What is God's motive here? What is His motive? for raising up Pharaoh. (laughs) What is his motive for doing all of these plagues? What is his motive at the Red Sea? Say again? To show his sovereignty, to display his name, his reputation, if you will. Why does God care about his reputation? Well, there's a lot of answers to that question, but that he cares about his reputation cannot be gainsaid from scripture. Absolutely, God cares about his reputation. But I say directly to you, that God cares about his reputation because he wants you saved. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Will be saved. And so if he makes his name great among the nations, then the nations will call on that great name for salvation. The best example of this that we said before is Rahab, the harlot who heard the great things that God did in Egypt and called on that great name for salvation. And so we see a display of God's greatness and his power and his majesty saved that one woman. And so it's been saving people ever since. Look at 2 Samuel, if you will. Put your finger here in Exodus chapter 3 and go over to 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is David's prayer. After, After God had promised to build a house for David, this is one of my favorite parts of Scripture, David wants to build a house for God, and God says, no, I'll build a house for you. Isn't that wonderful? And what was the house he built? The house of David is, is that of his uh, Savior, Jesus Christ. David's Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That is David's house, He was the son of David. So it's an incredible chapter. But um, David, looking back on Israel's history, thinks about um, Israel and how God brought them out in a mighty way. 2 Samuel 7, verse 23. This is David's prayer to God. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people, Israel, as your very own forever, and you, O Lord, have become their God. So he says God's motivation in all of the Exodus and Joshua account is to make a name for himself. So I said it cannot be denied from Scripture that God seeks to make a name for himself. And why? So that sinners like you and me may call on his name. Now look over at Exodus chapter 6. Go back, if you would, to Exodus. And he reveals his name. His name is the Lord. Now everywhere that you find in most English uh, translations of the Bible uh, this covenant name that was revealed here at the burning bush, Yahweh or Jehovah, they're different pronunciations and you can pronounce it either way. But uh, I tend to go with Yahweh, Yahweh is the four letter word, J-H-V-H or Y-H-V-H that is revealed and it was so revered by the Jews that they would never seek to pronounce it as it was written on the page. But they would merely read the word Adonai, which means my Lord, instead of uh, his covenant name, because they were afraid, I think almost superstitiously so, afraid to take the name of the Lord on their lips. And so we ended up with a hybrid, uh, which became the word Jehovah. But God revealed his name, Yahweh, to the people here, and if you look at Exodus chapter 6... In verse 1, look what he says. Then the Lord, and by the way, everywhere in the English translation that you see the capital letters, L-O-R-D, that's the what they call the tetragrammaton, the four letters. This is the, the revealed name of God, Yahweh. So anytime, if, if from now on when you're reading in the Old Testament and you see this L-O-R-D, the capital letters, That is the uh, name that God revealed to Moses in the burning bush. Then the Lord, you can see it there in verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1, said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. Now stop there. Again and again he does this, doesn't he? How many times does he say, I am the Lord? He says it almost like at the beginning and at the end of every communication. I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then he gives them the Ten Commandments and at the end he says, I am the Lord. And so he's establishing his authority. He's establishing also his covenant faithfulness. This is his covenant name. I am the Lord. Look what he says also in verse 6 of uh, Exodus 6. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Verse 7, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Do you see that? Again and again, he's taking this name and establishing it. I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. He says again in verse 8, And I will bring you to the land I swore with an uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. He does the same thing in the Ten Commandments. You don't have to look there, but look later. You'll see he begins this exact same way. I am the Lord your God who led you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. And so this is a very good question that Moses has asked. And he says, I am who I am. Now this expression is actually very interesting hebrew experts have said that all three tenses of the hebrew verb are found in this name so basically it's unfolded in the book of revelation he is the god who is and who was and who is to come the almighty that's his name and so basically you could boil it down to i am because god always am if you can express you know follow my bad grammar here He always exists he always is in the present he's always alive and every moment of time is constantly before him the past is before him as though it's going on right now the present is before him all over the world the future is before him as though it's happening right now he is always in the present and so he says you are my son today i have begotten you he's always begetting christ always he is eternally Father, Son, and Spirit, the great I am. Now, I think this is very, very significant. And why? Because it gives us an identification of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What do I mean by that? Well, if you go into the Gospel of John, we're not going to do this, but how many times does Jesus say, I am, in the Gospel of John? Over and over, he says. In John chapter 6, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever believes in me will never go hungry. In John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. John 10:7. he says, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. In that same passage, he says, I am the good shepherd. So he's both the gate for the sheep and he is the good shepherd who leads them in and out. In John 10:36, he says, I am God's son. In John 11, 25 and 26, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. I am the resurrection and the life. John thirteen, thirteen, he says, You call me teacher and lord, and rightly so, for I am. Teacher and Lord. John thirteen, nineteen, he says, I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am. That you are what? Well, that I am, that I am God. John 14 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 15:5. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit apart from me. You can do nothing. And then very plainly in John 8:58, he says, before Abraham was born, I am. This is a clear claim to deity. He is the God who always exists. And as I said in my teaching on the Trinity on Wednesday evening, this is a central doctrine in our faith the deity of Christ, the Trinity of God, central to your salvation. Take a minute, if you would, please, and go over to John 8.24, and you'll see what I mean. Those of you that were there on uh, Wednesday night, bear with us. You already saw this, but I want to share it with you again because it's so important. John 8.24. This is Jesus speaking to <clears throat> his enemies fighting against him, Jewish people who are constantly opposing him. <clears throat> and Jesus says to them in verse 23, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Now John 8:24, he said, I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am, shall I just read the NIV? I'll go ahead and just read the NIV. Though it drives me crazy, my beloved NIV. If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. Now, the NIV helped us along there by putting in something a little smoother than what the Greek actually says. But what does the Greek actually say? It says, you will die in your sins. I told you that you would die in your sins. Do you understand the significance of this? This is Jesus, the judge of all the earth. All judgment has been committed to Christ by the Father because he is the Son of Man. And he's going to judge all nations and every individual within the nations. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. This is Christ. He will sit on his throne and judge the nations. And he is speaking these words to specific flesh and blood human beings and he's saying, I told you you would die in your sins. What does that mean, to die in your sins? Well, it means to be under the wrath and curse of God. It means to be condemned to hell forever and ever. What a terrifying word. And on what basis is Jesus making this statement? Well, he said in the very next phrase, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. That's what the Greek says. What is he saying in John 8, 24? If you do not believe that I am... You will die in your sins. You won't understand this if you don't understand how this word was originally given in Exodus 3. That I am who I am. That I am God in the flesh. Can I tell you that John's gospel does not reveal the deity of Christ just in John 1.1. No matter what our Jehovah's Witness uh, witness, uh, neighbors tell us. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Oh, it's woven through the entire gospel of John. And this is a pinnacle statement, because if you don't believe it, you will go to hell. That's tragic, isn't it? But for us, it's glorious. The great I am of the burning bush took on a human body and became our savior. Now, one more statement about I am. It means that, Jesus, or that God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is self-existent. Do you see that in the I am? I am that I am. Tell them that I am. I am means I am self-existent. I need no creator. Everything else in the universe, whether spiritual or physical, needed God to create. And in him we live and move and have our being. He holds us together. He is our creator. But he himself needed no creator. He is self-existent. He is the eternal God. That's a lot out of the statement, I am that I am. But this is his name that he revealed. Now go back to Exodus chapter 3. He reveals himself as I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. And then he says in verse 15, God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Do you see how holy this name is? And do you see how blasphemous it would be for Christ to take that name on himself were it not true? The Jews were right to pick up stones to stone Jesus if in fact he was a blasphemer, a liar. If he claimed to be the great I am and was not in fact the great I am. But he was. All evidence has clearly shown that Jesus is the eternal God. This is the holy name of God. Now in verse 16 to the end of the chapter, we see a clear display of the sovereignty and the foreknowledge and the power of God. Look what he says. He says, first of all, go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk, and honey now i think first of all we see the order of god go and call the elders he says get the elders of israel on your side work with them later on he's going to need them you remember how his father-in-law jethro said you're taking too much on yourself you need the elders to come alongside you and help you judge more trivial cases so at the very beginning of the call, he's going to be meeting with the elders of Israel and he's going to be disseminating this message of liberation. This message of the great exodus going to be communicated through the elders of the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. So assemble the elders together, he says. And then he says in verse 18, the elders of Israel will listen to you. Now how does he know that? You know, nowadays there's a view of God that says that he does not know the future decisions of free will agents like human beings. That is rubbish. God knows everything. He knows what the elders are gonna do and he knows what Pharaoh is going to do. He tells them both in this one passage. The elders will listen to you. They'll be eager to listen to you. Pharaoh will not listen to you. You see how it works? The elders will listen and Pharaoh will not. And by the way, look what it says in verse 19. He says, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go. Stop right there. Then God, why are you sending me? (laughs) God's ways are not our ways. I'm going to send you to persuade Pharaoh to let you go on a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the God of Hebrews, and he's not going to let you go. Okay, well then, why am I going? It doesn't make any sense. You've told me I'm going to fail. I'm going to send you on a diplomatic mission, and you will fail, but I want you to go. It doesn't seem to make any sense. But we already know why God wants this done. He wants to display his power in Pharaoh. He wants to show what he can do. But first we must have the diplomatic mission. We must have the missionary. We must have the message preached to Pharaoh. And you must go. And so the elders of Israel will listen to you. But Pharaoh will not listen to you. Verse 19. And he will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. I want to encourage you, Moses. I have a mighty hand. I have the power that will enable Pharaoh to let you go. It will compel him to let you go. And so he raises up a Pharaoh who is not weak and compliant. He's not supple. He's not indolent, not lazy. He's very vigilant over his realm, concerned about the building projects that the Jews are doing. And he is stubborn and hard-hearted and will not let the people go. There could have been a different king. There have been many weak, suppliant, yielding kings in history. Not this time. God would not have it so. He said, I know that this man will not let you go. For I've raised him up for that very purpose. We'll talk about that in due time. In verse 20, so I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. Stop right there. At first he will resist, at first he will oppose. But after I strike Egypt with all of the wonders I intend to uh, strike them with, and by the way, all of them, not four of them, not six of them, but all of them, after I have struck Egypt with all of the plagues that I intend, then he will let you go. Pharaoh only understands a display of power. And Pharaoh, as we've said before, your arm is too short to box with God. He's gonna take God on and he's gonna try to fight him. And in the end, God will display his power. And so God will use signs and wonders to prove that he is active in this situation. He will bring his people out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Now, one other comment that I find fascinating in verse 21. I will make the Egyptians favorable toward this people. They will be favorably disposed. (laughs) I will make them favorably disposed toward you. How does he do that? What is a favorable disposition? Can you tell when somebody has a favorable disposition toward you? They're open-handed. They give you things. They're smiling. They're happy about you. They like you. They're good neighbors. They bring cake over and invite you to parties and they love you. Even fruitcake at Christmas time. It can be a blessing. So they're open-handed towards you and you can tell from their body language that they are favorably disposed toward you. Well, where, what is the root of their favorable disposition in this text in verse 21? God's sovereign will. Do you see it in verse 21? I will make them favorably disposed towards you. Well, how's he going to do that? Don't we have a free will? Of course we have a free will. If you can explain what free means. Our will follows our nature and God understands our nature perfectly. And I will compel them. I will make them favorably disposed. Now, do you see a problem here? Why does he make the Egyptian nation and their neighbors favorably disposed, but not Pharaoh favorably disposed? Is God not able to make Pharaoh favorably disposed? Of course he is. The king's heart is like a water course in the hands of the Lord. He directs it whichever way he pleases, Proverbs 21.1. He could have done it with Pharaoh. He chose not to. Pharaoh, not favorably disposed until a mighty arm compels him. The neighbors, very favorably disposed. They'll give you anything you ask. You see how it works? So the sovereign hand of God. Look again at verse 21 and following. I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder (laughs) the Egyptians. So that basically there's a battle going on, and it's going to be a spiritual battle, but there's going to be a material battle. Outcome. You will plunder the Egyptians. And you say, that's not really very fair, is it? Well, I think it's eminently fair for 400 years of hard service. After all, the scripture says a worker is worth his keep. These people have slaved for 400 years, building their tombs and their monuments and their granaries and all of that. As slaves, they have served. A worker is worth his keep, and it's time for them to be paid. It's payday at last. And so I will make them favorably disposed, and they will give you all of the articles needed to build my tabernacle and all the things that you'll need to begin your new life in the Promised Land. Is God not good? Is he not sovereign? Is he not powerful and majestic? And so now you're Moses, and you're saying, Wonderful, I'm ready to go. I'm so excited. Oh, please, let me go. When can I begin? Chapter 4, verse 1. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me when I go to, to the elders? And, say the Lord, and they'll say to me, the Lord did not appear to you. This is flagrant unbelief, is it not? There's really no excuse for this. Because he's already told them in verse 18, the elders will listen to you. And what is Moses saying in chapter 4, verse 1? No, they won't. I know these elders. They're stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. And they're not going to listen to me. I just told you they would. Who are we to do this kind of quibbling with God? Why do we do it? God has already said that they would listen. The elders would listen. And so Moses is acting in unbelief here. Be encouraged. Why be encouraged? Because God can use an unbeliever like Moses to accomplish great things. Have you ever argued with God? Has God ever called you to do something great and you started to quibble with him? And say, well, what if I go and they don't like me? And what if this doesn't work out? Or my support doesn't come in? Or what if this... Listen, God has already said that he would support you, that he would provide for your every need. And who are we to argue back with God? And here, quite plainly, God speaking to a prophet, to Moses, and he said, the elders will accept you. And so Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? And now we have the giving of the signs. And he gives him three signs. He gives him the staff, he gives him the leprous hand, and he gives him the water sign, where the water turns into blood. And in each case, it's an act of his grace and his mercy and kindness. We said this morning that our God is a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, and he works with us at the level of our unbelief. John the Baptist doubted Jesus, didn't he? We talked about that this morning. He doubted that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? And so he doubted him. How did Jesus deal with John's doubt? Very gently. He gives him evidence. Of his sovereign power through all the miracles he does. And then he gives him a gentle exhortation. Blessed is a man who does not fall away on account of me. That's how our Lord dealt with with John the Baptist's doubt. How does he deal with Moses' doubt? Okay, I'll give you some signs. I'll give you some miracles to do. God is gracious. He is kind and loving. Look at verse 2 through 6. Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. I love that. These are little moments, all right? What's in your hand? A staff. It's very basic. I have a staff, I took off sandals a moment ago, I'm on ground right now, about in a minute I'm going to put my sandals back on, I've got a stick in my hand, very, very basic, what's in your hand, a staff, he replied, the Lord said, throw it on the ground, I I just think it's interesting, like he didn't know that that was a staff in his hand, these interactions, this is the eternal God who already told him what the future is going to be, what's in your hand, a staff, it's the conversation with the Eternal God, just in case you didn't know, God, this is a staff. If I speak slowly, you will understand. It is a staff. The Lord said, okay, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, verse 6, put your hand inside your cloak, So Moses put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, it was leprous like snow. Verse 7, now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Verse 8, then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, uh, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, then take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. So there are the three signs that he gives him. He gives them the sign of the staff, which becomes a snake, and then turns back again. The sign of the hand, which is stuck into the cloak, and when he brings it out, it's leprous. And then when he sticks it back in and brings it out, it's healed again. And then the third sign is the sign of water turned into blood. But all of these are for a purpose. Now, next time, God willing, I'm going to talk about some specific spiritual details. I think there was a reason that the staff turned into a snake and back again. There are many things that God could have chosen to do, but I think there's a reason why he did that. There's also a reason why he chooses to work the hand into leprosy and then back to healing again. I think it shows something about our sovereign God, and so also with the water and the blood. But the cumulative effect of the sign, God tells them, and it is so that they will know that I sent you, that you are my spokesman, and that I intend to bring the people out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. How do we apply the things that we've learned tonight? First of all, realize that the same God who spoke to Moses is here with us tonight. If you're a child of God, He's living within you by the power of the Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit dwelling within you. He is calling you to work in His vineyard. He's calling you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. He has a work, a commission for you to do. And there's a great commission for the entire world. Go and make disciples of all nations. But there is a targeted, reasonable work assigned to each one of us. Do you know what yours is? Do you know what your field is? 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I planted the seed, said Paul. Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. As each was assigned his task. That's what he says. What is your task? Paul knew what his task was to plant the seed in Corinth. Apollos knew what his uh, task was to water that seed. Do you know what your calling is? In the year 2003, I want to see our church well organized for ministry in outreach to our community and to the ends of the earth. We cannot do everything. We have to have a clear sense of what God is calling us to do. What is our field to work? And what is each one of you, what is your part in that field to work? It begins with you coming before God on holy ground, spiritually with your sandals off, coming face to face with God and saying, what are you calling me to do this year? What can I do to serve you and then listen to him? And when you're through with your unbelief, and when you're through with your arguing back and forth, go and do the thing that God has called you to do.
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from TwoJourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at TwoJourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life